Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and this is the Analysis.News podcast. On June 17th, Canada lost its bid to be elected to the UN Security Council. Norway received 130 votes, Ireland came in second with 114, and Canada, a somewhat distant third, with 108 votes. There are more than a few Canadians that were happy to see their government lose. In fact, there was a petition of well-known Canadians calling for Canada's defeat. The petition says, amongst other things... Canada ranks among the 12th largest arms exporters, and its weapons have fueled conflicts across the globe, including the devastating war in Yemen. In a disappointing move, they say, Canada refused to join 122 countries represented at the 2017 UN conference to negotiate a legally binding instrument to prohibit nuclear weapons, leading towards their total elimination. And Canada refused to sign that. And for those of you that follow the analysis.news, you know this is a constant topic with us. And, you know, I'm working with Daniel Ellsberg on a documentary series. And just to put this in a little bit more context, most people that understand and follow the issue of nuclear weapons and the threat of nuclear war believe there is a 100% chance, not a chance, I guess if you're at 100%, a certainty that if we continue on the path we're on of expanding the uh, building of nuclear weapons and not moving towards their elimination, they think it's a certainty. At some point, we are going to have a nuclear war, whether it starts accidentally or otherwise, and that will be the end. So not to be part of that UN conference to negotiate a legally binding instrument and so on, is outrageous. I recorded the following interview just a couple of days before the UN vote. So the tense in a few places might be a little wrong, but the reasons why people who signed the petition wanted Canada's defeat are very clear. At any rate, now joining us to discuss the campaign to deny Canada this prestigious UN seat is Yves Angler. Yves is a Montreal-based activist and author. He's published 11 books, including his latest, House of Mirrors, Justin Trudeau's Foreign Policy. He's been dubbed Canada's version of Noam Chomsky. He's been called one of the most important voices on the Canadian left and in the mold of I.F. Stone and lots more good stuff. Thanks for joining us, Yves. Thanks for having me. So, Justin Trudeau presents himself as a young, progressive, hip world leader. He even joins some of the protests in Ottawa supporting the movement against police violence. Shouldn't the world want someone who, at the very least, seems more rational than Trump to have a seat at the UN Security Council? Well, more rational than Trump is a pretty low bar. Um, No, I think it's quite clear that uh, Canada doesn't deserve uh, the support of progressive-minded people for a seat on the Security Council. The two countries that Canada is competing with, uh, Ireland and Norway, for the uh, Western Europe and others, uh, the two seats for Western Europe and others, um, have uh, much less damaging foreign policies. And you can go from the question of uh, nuclear arms uh, and uh, nuclear disarmament initiatives where Ireland has uh, joined in those initiatives, uh, not part of NATO. You can take a look at um, the uh, the question of 
voting record on Palestinian rights at the UN. And uh, since uh, 2000, Canada has voted against uh, 166 resolutions upholding Palestinian rights. Uh, Norway and Ireland haven't voted against uh, uh, one one of those. Um, you take a look at the climate question and Canada's per capita uh, greenhouse gas emissions are uh, Ireland, Norway have uh, just more just more than half the per capita greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, you take a look at Canada's mining industry and this massive mining sector that that uh, is uh, inv- involved in abuses all around the globe. Um, and the Canadian government backs it up. Ireland and Norway don't have equivalent uh, um, uh, industries that their foreign policy are so uh, enmeshed with. So it's really the fact that progressives don't immediately assume that uh, um, Canada is uh, is uh, unwarranted of, of our support for for the UN's highest decision-making body is because there's this whole uh, aura of uh, Canada, the peacekeeping, uh, this sort of mythology that really only holds up if you compare it to um, Washington. So yes, Canadian foreign policy is better than the uh, U.S. foreign policy, but that's a that's damning with uh, with faint praise. Uh, let's let's go through some of the issues, but let's start with the nuclear one. How did Trudeau? How did the Canadian government justify not signing uh, this agreement uh, to restrict the uh, nuclear weapons? Trudeau framed it as if you're not going to have um, the main nuclear powers at the meeting, uh, there's no point in talking. That's how the prime minister uh, his argument he put forward. Um, you know, which in some sort of abstract level could make some sense. So, you know, does that mean that the next meeting, the next NATO meeting that that Canada attends, the Canadian government is going to call for the U.S., uh, Britain, and France to uh, to eliminate their nuclear weapons? Uh, of course not. Rather, Canada is uh, you know member in good standing of NATO, and NATO, of course, is a nuclear armed club. And Canada Canadian officials are you know on NATO's. Uh, uh, um, a body uh, that that plans for uh, possible uh, nuclear warfare, uh, and Canada, you know, has troops on the border of Russia, which in in uh, in Latvia, which increases the possibility of uh, of, of uh, a nuclear nuclear conflict uh, somewhere down the way. Um, so yeah, so Trudeau puts forward, you know, a. A rationale that, in a some abstract level, maybe makes some sense, but when you know the, both the Trudeau government's record and the Canadian government's record more generally of of, of support and or indifference to uh, uh, to nuclear weapons, you know it's a, it's a it's a bogus uh, rationale. But there's uh, there's little in terms of uh, opposition that that holds them to account on the issue. To what extent is the uh, Canadian arms industry uh, connected with the American nuclear weapons industry? Canada had, has long been a uh, uh, exporter of uh, uranium to the U.S. I don't believe that's uh, that significant anymore. But for decades, uh, U.S. Uh, nuclear weapons um, had, uh, you know, were aided by uh, Canadian exports. Um, Early on, uh, the Canadian Canada had uh, Canadian fighter jets had uh, you know U.S. nuclear weapons um, based in in, uh, 
in Europe uh, had new, uh, were armed with U.S. nuclear weapons, and, and uh, there were obviously U.S. nuclear weapons in Canada for many decades. Um, uh, so I don't know how big a role today um, the arms industry uh, in this country has with regards to U.S. nuclear weapons, but the arms industry uh, more generally um, is a, you know, the Canadian arms industry, of course, is primarily makes parts for U.S. weapons. And, and we don't even actually know how, how many uh, billions of dollars of, of Canadian arms exports go down to the U.S. every year because um, the, uh, there's an agreement where they don't even actually have to, uh, have to uh, compile data on the exports. Um, so Canada, Canada's arms industry and the U.S. Arms, arms industry act like it's all one, it's all part of one, uh, one uh, market. Um, that, of course, is a uh, force in favor of Canada being a, uh, you know, a, a supporter of NATO, a more aggressive uh, mili- militarist force internationally. Um, so the arms industry and, and the, the open letter uh, calls on the arms industry, specifically actually around uh, sending weapons to, uh, to Saudi Arabia uh, in the context of the, the devastating Saudi war on on. Uh, on Yemen, um, and Canada has provided significant uh, light armored vehicles, uh, sniper rifles, etc., to the Saudis and to the UAE while they're uh, while they're waging war on Yemen. Um, but the arms industry is definitely a part of uh, understanding why Canada has a uh, as a belligerent uh, uh, foreign policy. If you look at the extent to which Canada depends on the American market. Uh, it probably tells you a lot about uh, what Canada's foreign policy is. Uh, 32% of the Canadian economy is exports and 75% of the exports go to the United States. Of course, the bulk of that is fossil fuels. I once interviewed uh, General Canadian General Lewis McKenzie, uh, who told me in, in very blunt language, I was surprised, he, he said, spoke the way he spoke. He said, I asked him why did... Canada sent troops to Afghanistan. And he said, the answer is very simple. We didn't send troops to uh, Iraq. And if we wanted to keep exporting goods to the United States, and these are his words, we had to pay in blood for the right to export, to continue exports to the United States. And so we sent troops to Afghanistan to pay the blood debt for access to the markets. And I think that tells you tells a lot about what Canadian foreign policy is, and it's not just about the uh, advantage of the sending stuff to the markets, goods to the markets, but it's also Canadian extractive industries abroad who depend on uh, governments, especially in Central America, that are backed by the United States, and these are dictatorships on the whole are very right wing governments that are help facilitate. Uh, Canadian gold mining companies and otherwise. So talk a bit about the uh, Canadian foreign policy and Canadian extractive industries. Yeah, I mean, in the in the open letter, we talk about that question, which is the fact that uh, the Canada is the home of around half of the world's mining companies. Canada has about 0.5% of the world's uh, population. So about 100 times Canada's proportion of the uh, world's population in terms of uh, mining companies based or, or listed on uh, Canadian stock exchanges. And these companies are engaged in uh, abuses uh, all around the globe. Pretty much you can pick 
almost any country in the global south and find an example of a Canadian mining company involved in a conflict with a local community uh, where the people have been killed at the, around the mine. And, uh, and this is all incredibly well documented. Um, and in the letter, we talk about how uh, about a half dozen UN bodies have criticized the Canadian government for not reining in uh, Canadian uh, companies abroad, specifically targeting uh, mining companies, extractive companies. And, uh, and so the Trudeau government, when before they got elected, said they were going to bring in some better regulations on Canadian mining companies operating abroad. They're going to bring in an ombudsperson with some teeth. And then after uh, and they, repeat, they repeated that promise a number of times. And after aggressive lobbying from the mining sector, they six, eight months ago, they announced this new ombudsperson that basically has no capacity to even force companies to provide documents uh, and very little capacity to uh, end public support for Canadian mining companies found to be engaged in, in abuses abroad. Um, and at the same time, so while they haven't brought in any of the restrictions they, they promised they would, they would bring in, at the same time, they've been lobbying aggressively for, for very controversial uh, mining companies. The, the, the worst example being in Tanzania, where Barrick Gold, um, probably the most controversial of all Canadian mining companies, at one point the biggest uh, gold company in the world, um, they were in a major conflict back in 2017 with the uh, with the Tanzanian government uh, and uh, over hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in unpaid taxes, uh, royalties, and um, the uh, this, one of their mines in Tanzania, um, the North Mara mine, had uh, 65 people, according to the official statistics. Some say actually more, but 65 people had been killed between 2006 and 2016 by uh, Barrick paid uh, security forces around the mine. And uh, the Canadian uh, High Commissioner in, in, in Tanzania, uh, Ian Miles, while uh, this big conflict's going on between uh, the Tanzanian government and Barrick, uh, organizes a meeting for the president of Tanzania and the president of Barrick. And then after the meeting comes out and makes a declaration about how Barrick uh, uh, upholds uh, the highest standards of so, uh, corporate social responsibility and basically it gives the uh, diplomatic uh, explicit diplomatic support for the company in their conflict with the Tanzanian government. And so if you can back Barrick Gold amidst you know, the most controversial mining company in the place where they're in the, you know, committed the worst uh, abuses, um, it basically is a sign of uh, the the Trudeau government being willing to back Canadian mining companies sort of no matter what. Um, and so, you know, increasingly people around the world, I don't know how much of this trickles up into the, into the realm of, uh, of the diplomatic world or the UN ambassadors in, in New York, but increasingly uh, people around the world uh, associate um, uh, Canada with uh, mining companies that come in and uh, push peasants off their land, uh, destroy uh, waterways and ecosystems, uh, etc. I've often wondered if there isn't, a, in some times, uh, an actual division of labor, quote-unquote, where Canada gets an assignment on behalf of the U.S. empire to do some dirty work. Uh, certainly we saw that during the Vietnam War, where Canada helped spy 
uh, for the United States while it was supposedly working on an international control commission, which was not supposed to be spying, but it came out that it did. Um, I believe that was during the time of Trudeau's father, the other prime minister, Trudeau. Um, but Venezuela seems to be another example. Uh, I, I've talked about this before, but in 2004, when I was in Venezuela, I decided to go see the Canadian embassy. And, I, you know, I was the executive producer of a well-known uh, CBC television debate show, as well as I'm a known filmmaker. And so the embassy knew who I was and said, come. And when I went to the embassy in Caracas, uh, they had organized a meeting for me with about seven or eight members of the uh, anti-Chavista opposition. And for about two hours, you know, told me story after story about how horrible the Chavez was and how horrible the government was. I mean, whether what they were saying was true or not is kind of not the point. What business did the Canadian embassy have for playing that kind of role of directly organizing and collaborating with the Venezuelan opposition? And of course, it got even worse later. So what, what do you make of Canada's role in being so much in the lead on the question of uh, supporting the opposition in Venezuela? Well, I think you're exactly right when you talk about division of labor uh, with the, within the U.S. empire. Um, the Canadian government was, with Peru, the two countries that set up, and I think it's really the Canadian government that pushed the process, set up the Lima Group of, uh, of uh, countries opposed uh, to, uh, to the Maduro government of Venezuela. And it frames itself as being a non-U.S., uh, you know, U.S. isn't part of it. And sort of, you know, it's sort of this coalition of Latin American countries outside of the grip of Washington concerning itself with, with uh, democracy and human rights in, in Venezuela. Um, Canadian governments or had, uh, I think, held three different Lima Group meetings in Canada. Um, just really aggressive support uh, for for the for the Lima Group, and and that's definitely an example of um, it's preferred. I think some of the Latin American countries would be more uncomfortable to to join such a coalition if it, the U.S. was explicitly a member of it and was explicitly uh, driving uh, the initiative. Um, you know, that's just one part of Canada's uh, aggressive, uh, uh, brazen campaign to oust the Venezuelan government. And, and the UN-recognized government, we point that out in the, in the open letter, um, this is the government recognized by, uh, the Maduro government is the one recognized by the, uh, by the United Nations, and uh, not, not, Juan, not Juan Guaido. And uh, Canada has, you know, four rounds of sanctions against Venezuela. And, and I don't think the sanctions um, have that great of an impact on Venezuelan economic life. But I think that they, one of the things they do is they provide a little bit of sort of um, legitimacy to the U.S. sanctions, which, which are, of course, much more uh, damaging. And so the fact that they can uh, um, say that Canada is also sanctioning uh, Venezuela, that's something that the, uh, the Trump administration likes. Um, Canada's uh, taken the uh, Venezuela International Criminal Court, um, uh, and even actually, if you look at how the uh, Trudeau, when he brought uh, Venezuela International Criminal Court, first time ever that a member state, uh, a number of 
uh, Latin American countries brought with with Canada brought Venezuela to the to the ICC. Uh, first time member a member state brought another member state to the to the ICC. So look at all the human rights violations in the world, and that's. Uh, um, certainly what's going on in Venezuela is not um, the worst of it. Um, but how Trudeau justified bringing it during a speech announced when during the speech at the General Assembly in 2018, uh, UN General Assembly, he framed it as, as the ICC being uh, something that the Bush administration didn't like. And this was Canada upholding the international rules-based order and upholding the ICC as this, this institution multilateral institution, um, when it was clear that bringing the ICC was a, you know, a, a step down the path of supporting uh, the Trump administration's uh, bid to, to uh, for regime change in Venezuela. So, so clearly Canada has, has taken on uh, really aggressively uh, uh, this part of the, the U.S.-led campaign um, that uh, that enables um, Washington to uh, to move forward with with overthrowing the Venezuelan government, but it, but it should be noted, as we noted in the in the open letter, that if you look at Canada's uh, allies on this campaign against Venezuela, that's again supposedly about democracy, constitution, human rights. Well, the government, the president in Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, his constitutional legitimacy is almost nil. The, the Honduran constitution is clear that only one term, Juan Orlando Hernandez got the uh, the court to uh, allow him to run a second term. When he's losing by five percentage points after 60% of votes counted, all of a sudden counting stops uh, when it comes back on. Now all of a sudden Juan Orlando is in the lead. So his constitutional legitimacy is infinitely less than, than Maduro's. Uh, or to take a look at human rights violations, Ivan Duque in Colombia I mean, more than 100 uh, social activists killed last year, according to UN in, in Colombia, even worse rate so far at the start of this year. Uh, demobilized FARC, former guerrilla, also another 75 or something like that, from former guerrilla. Um, Duque has tried to under, undermine the, uh, the peace accord with the, with the former guerrillas in, in, in Colombia. Um, uh, and uh, so, so you look at the you know human rights violations, much worse human rights violations taking place in Colombia than in than in Venezuela. Uh, you look at Canada's role in, in Haiti and supporting the Jovenel Moise presidency in Haiti, almost no support, massive demonstrations in Haiti, general strike, multiple general strikes, one for more than a month. Um, and the only reason Jovenel Moise, who's highly repressive, corrupt, uh, then the election that he you know, supposedly won, almost no one participated in. Um, only reason Jovenel Moise is in office in, in, in Haiti is because of the support of Washington and, and, and Ottawa. Also, Jovenel Moise is part of the Lima Group opposition to to, to Venezuela. Does Canada's uh, positioning in Haiti and Honduras a ref- simply a reflection of its kind of pro-American bias or its own economic interests? Um, I think it's, you know, it's both happening at the same time. You know, I, you, earlier when you talked about, you know, Canada uh, delivering so many, uh, so many goods crossing the border to the U.S. and therefore Canada had to send troops to Afghanistan. Uh, you know, I think there's a, there's a major degree of truth to that. But, you know, compare that to Mexico. Right. Mexico's economy is comparably and I maybe even more so uh, dependent on trade with the U.S. But Mexico doesn't have um, as uh, sort of 
pro-Washington uh, foreign policy in the region or the world, for that matter. Um, and that's not to say that there's not problems with Mexican foreign policy. I'm sure if you if you look into it, there are many. Um, I think that the the Canadian ruling class, uh, the Canadian elites, for a long time. Um, have uh, seen the world and profited from the world in a very similar way to the U.S. elite. Incredible in, in levels of integration among the the uh, two countries' uh, uh, elites. Uh, you know, there's a question of uh, of, uh, of white supremacy uh, in this. There's a question of of uh, of uh, you know, there's a linguistic question. There's so so I I think that 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 the Canadian uh, ruling class, yes, it's you know its support for Juan Orlando Hernandez in, in, in Honduras is, is tied to uh, the fact that U.S. backs him, but it's also tied to the fact that Guild and Activewear, big Montreal uh, uh, t-shirt maker, has major operations there and and you know helped to overthrow uh, uh, the Manuel Zelaya government back in 2009 or or or. Um, or Goldcore, second biggest gold company in Canada, uh, they were actually found back in 2009. They were found to be uh, paying people to go into uh, protests in support of the coup against uh, against uh, against Zelaya, uh, and they were unhappy with uh, Zelaya's uh, mining policy, and, and uh, Gildan was unhappy with increasing of the minimum wage. So, so it's a mix of being tied into you know, Washington and following what Washington does, but also that Canadian corporations and Canadian capital are, uh, are, you know, major players in many countries, certainly throughout this hemisphere. Um, uh, and they, uh, they, they view the world and profit from it in a very similar way to the, to the U.S. elite. your open letter, uh, you say that Ottawa has stated it will act as a, quote, asset for Israel on the council. Uh, What's the context for that? Well, that's Christian Freeland, who's the former foreign affairs minister, now the deputy uh, uh, prime minister, back in November of 2018 uh, at an event in Israel uh, alongside uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, And uh, I think what the context is, uh, I mean, it's, it reflects this extreme pro-Israel uh, disposition of, of, uh, of the Trudeau government. Um, uh, but the context of it in part is that an understanding that one of the big um, uh, weaknesses for Canada's candidacy for the, for the UN is that there's an understanding that there's a lot of opposition to uh, to uh, Canada's policy of voting against UN resolutions. Um, and so there was a, uh, a sense that the campaign to win a seat on the Security Council would lead the Trudeau government to taking more pro-Palestinian positions because that's the, that's the sentiment of the overwhelming majority of, uh, of UN member states. Um, and so I think partly what she was doing was trying to uh, uh, allay some fears it, within Israel of uh, <clears throat> that Canada might move in a, in a you know away from this staunch uh, pro-Israel uh, perspective. But in practice, I mean, they did one vote uh, back in December, the first vote uh, in favor of uh, Palestinian rights that they actually voted for. Um, and there was a whole bunch of media attention devoted to that vote. 
Um, and it was viewed as, you know, tied to their campaign for the Security Council seat. Um, but in practice, I mean, the Canadian government has just continued with this extreme uh, anti-Palestinian uh, uh, policy. Uh, just one example, uh, earlier this year, the Canadian ambassador in, in Israel, uh, Deborah Lyons, organized a party for uh, uh, Canadians who fight in Israeli military. Uh, it was a pizza party. And she, she said at the time that, uh, the, the Canada was proud. They, they were fighting, uh, uh, I think it's about 50, I forget the exact number of Canadians fighting in the IDF. Now, uh, of course, these Canadians fighting in the IDF would be administering the occupation in the West Bank. They would be uh, part of uh, firing on uh, on a peaceful march of return uh, protesters in Gaza. Um, and and you know, Canada actually has a law, the Foreign Enlistment Act, on the books that says it's illegal to recruit for a foreign army. And they also there's also charitable uh, law that says charities that are not allowed to raise funds for other countries' militaries. But here you have Canada's ambassador organizing a pizza party for for Canadians fighting in the Israeli military. I mean, that's just uh, you know one of the examples of uh, just this extreme uh, anti-Palestinian. Palestinian uh, policy of the Trudeau government that, that I think will, we're hoping, there's actually a second uh, public letter uh, that's focused specifically on Canada's uh, anti-Palestinian uh, policies um, uh, that's been uh, emailed to, uh, I think it's more than 800 UN ambassadors. We're hoping that there's also that issue um, will resonate with some of the uh, UN ambassadors and that they will vote against Canada's bid for Security Council seat in part because of their anti-Palestinian uh, positions. I'm quoting now from the open letter. Falling short of its responsibilities as a global citizen, Canada continues to oppose the Basel Ban Amendment on the export of waste from rich to poor countries, which became binding in late 2019 after ratification by 97 countries. So 97 countries signed this thing and Canada wouldn't. How does the Trudeau government justify that? The very weak justification. Uh, try to basically not talk about it. Uh, and uh, there was a, a conflict between uh, Canada and Philippines over um, uh, multiple containers of, of trash uh, I believe they were they were uh, the, the claim was they were recyclables that were sent from Canada to uh, the Philippines. This goes back like four or five years. So it goes to this. I think it predates the Trudeau government. And then Trudeau twice when he was in the Philippines for two different uh, uh, conferences promised that he would deal with with this waste that was was uh, sent from Canada there to to the Philippines. And and it finally did about. Uh, about uh, mid about uh, about a year ago, I guess he they finally did uh, bring this this waste back from from the Philippines. But the Canadian, the Canadian government's stated rationale is that, that we should be allowed to uh, export um, uh, recyclables, and and they sort of even though there's this long history of the the. It, uh, companies say they're they're exporting uh, you know recyclable products, but in fact it's you know dirty diapers and you know regular household trash. Is a you know, long history of that. Well, if they're recyclables, why would you want? Why would you bother exporting them? Well, that's a whole other question. I think a lot of Canada's re- recycling has gone to uh, to China over the years and and, and and stuff like that. But 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 um, 
but so, but so, yeah. So both Ireland and I should point this out. Both Ireland and Norway, the two countries Canada is competing for at the Security Council, have signed the Basel uh, uh, ban uh, uh, amendment. Um, but, but this is like th- this obviously should be a, a, an absolute like no brainer. How in the world can Canada not sign this this uh, this uh, 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 convention? Um, it's actually an amendment of a convention. Um, but but if you actually look at it more closely, there's a whole bunch of these uh, uh, different treaties or conventions that Canada hasn't signed, including at like at the International Labour Organization. I was kind of surprised looking into that. There's all these statutes that Canada hasn't signed. It, it, one on fairly recent one on Indigenous uh, issues that Canada hasn't signed. Um, so th- this is this is again this is under a government. The whole foreign policy rhetoric of Justin Trudeau government, the primary sort of branding is international rules based order, international rules based order. They say it over and over, particularly Christian Freeland. Well, how, how about this? Here, I'm quoting from the statement again. Ottawa also failed to ratify the United Nations optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture and other cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment or punishment. How the hell could they not sign that? They cannot sign it because the Americans don't like it and there's almost no one in this country that are going to hold them to account on it. And they cannot, they cannot just not sign it. They cannot sign it and run around saying their whole foreign policy is designed to advance the international rules of disorder. I mean, it, 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 the, the hypocrisy is just so flagrant, but, but there is very little in terms of groups or, or, or opposition parties within the country that are going to, you know, put pressure on them to, uh, to follow through. And if, you know, Washington doesn't want them to sign it, or if there's a handful of companies in this country that want to export waste to the Philippines, well... Okay, here's one I really don't get. I'm quoting from the statement again. In November 2019, Canada once again refused to back a widely supported UN resolution on, quote, combating glorification of Nazism, neo-Nazism, and other practices that contribute to fueling, fueling contemporary forms of racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance. Now, I don't understand that just in terms of their own PR-ish feel good about what Canadian foreign policy is supposedly is. How can they not sign that? It's even worse than that. In their first uh, two months after they took office, or a bit, uh, bit, maybe a bit more than a month after they took office in 2015, they voted no in the last couple of years, they've just abstained. Almost every country in the world backs that resolution. The previous Harper government voted no a couple of times as well. And, and the only other countries that vote no is the U.S. and, uh, uh, and Ukraine. And, and it's, this resolution is perceived by the hawks in Washington as a uh, – how they frame it is this is a Russian, a Russian effort to embarrass the Ukraine. Now, of course, the uh, Canadian government has uh, a few hundred troops in the Ukraine, uh, training Ukrainian forces that are involved in the conflict in the east of the country. Uh, Canada's pumped a whole bunch of money into backing the right-wing forces uh, within the Ukraine. This goes back, you know, years and, and a whole lot in recent years. The police, uh, police in the Ukraine that are that are you know have these neo-Nazi ties. Um, the uh, Canadian um, military attaché in Kiev, uh, I think it was in the end of 2018, he, he, he met with um, uh, representatives of the Azov Battalion, 
uh, one of the uh, you know far right neo Nazi uh, uh, groups in in the in the Ukraine uh, you know sort of paramilitary force that actually incorporated into the Ukrainian military, um, and uh, so so that's the explanation. I mean, basically, Canada has jumped. Uh, you know, completely into this campaign of using the Ukraine as a as a uh, you know place to try to weaken Russia and uh, and the forces within the Ukraine that are most into into this you know this campaign of targeting Russia have all kinds of associations historic uh, and current with uh, with neo Nazi uh, uh, forces and so. Um, the Canadian government doesn't want to back this resolution at the UN. Um, and again, no one talks about it, right? It doesn't even get brought up in the in the Canadian media. And so they know they can get away with it. Well, I think uh, I'm convinced. Ireland or Norway? Okay, choose. Ireland or Norway? Eves. Well, there's two seats, so they, it's 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 three countries going for two seats. So both both Ireland and Norway. Uh, 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 should should get it. Uh, well, hopefully they'll both win it. Now, it's important to point out um, Canada has incredible advantages. Canada speaks the two main colonial languages, part of the Francophonie, part of the Commonwealth, part of, you know, member of the G7, uh, a much bigger country, much bigger diplomatic apparatus, uh, has, you know, board positions at the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. So in principle, Canada has much greater capacity to offer things to other countries, uh, you know, to lobby other countries and all that. Um, so if Canada does lose the seat, uh, that's a pretty strong uh, indication that there is a rejection of this uh, pro-U.S., pro-mining, uh, pro-oil, anti-Palestinian uh, foreign policy that uh, that is uh, dominant in this country. There was a, a extremely telling moment at the U.N. Security Council, and that's just before the American invasion of Iraq, where a lot of American normal normally allies, especially France, uh, opposed the uh, U.S. move towards the intervention in Iraq. And Chrétien, at the time, Prime Minister Chrétien, spoke fairly openly against the invasion of Iraq, although then, as, as we've talked about, did make up for it by going into Afghanistan. But there was some distancing by Chrétien on the Iraq war. Um, do you think that this Trudeau government would part ways over something like that, similar circumstances, whether it's a, a, a provocation against Iran or, or something else? Uh, do you, can, is there any of that, any distancing at all that can be seen from the Trudeau government, distancing from the U.S.? The, the, the Croatian government did not give uh, the Bush administration what it wanted most of all, which was official endorsement of the coalition, the willing. Minus that, they provided all kinds of supports, right? So there was actually they were in charge of a NATO uh, a naval task force, and the 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 uh, government had a legal opinion that because they were in charge of this task force that was stopping uh, Iraqi vessels, that they were legally at war with Iraq, and Canadian troops were part you know part of U.S. Uh, uh, training missions. It was at one point there was a Canadian general in charge of, uh, I forget what, 35,000 troops in Iraq. There's a whole series of ways in which Canada did support the war, but they didn't give the, the Bush administration what they wanted most of all, because there was massive demonstrations uh, across Canada, particularly in Quebec. 
it was so unpopular and it was also elections coming up in Quebec and the liberals were in power in Quebec and they were, Christian was very concerned of the Parti Québécois, the sovereigntist uh, party uh, uh, winning again and, you know, a possible return to another referendum. Um, uh, so, so the, it was, it was really the popular uh, uh, uprising or popular opposition. And, and this is really important. There's a real recent film that just came out about uh, the explanation for why Canada didn't go into uh, Iraq formally. And they basically completely wipe out the, the question of mobilization. And they interviewed Krejci a bunch of times and Krejci talked about how he wasn't sure about the evidence of, of uh, weapons of mass destruction and, and it basically frames it as, you know, his enlightened uh, uh, position rather than, uh, 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 you know, a power calculation based upon uh, massive uh, uh, mobilization. It was very cold days here in Montreal and uh, the biggest demo was over 200,000, around 200,000 people. Um, And uh, so, so, so that's, I think some of the, some of the background. So if that was to happen, with a war that Donald Trump led, I think, yes, I think you can have a scenario. If there was a massive uh, mobilization uh, against Canada contributing to a a uh, U.S.-led war, I think Trudeau would do something similar um, to what Croatia did. In some ways, it's even easier with Donald Trump, who is, you know, so uh, easily, you know, so easy to demonize and so unpopular in Canada, it makes it even, you know, even easier not to, not to be part of it. Um, But, but the reality, this is the, you know, that, that necessitates this, you know, huge outpouring of, of activism. If that doesn't exist, the disposition of, of the not just the Trudeau government, not the conservative government, not even you know, including probably the you know never happened before, but you know possible NDP government, the disposition is to just go along with Washington's direction unless there's a big you know uh, popular uh, mobilization. So even if even if the public is you know strongly against it, but it's not mobilized, they'll still go along with whatever uh, uh, U.S. Uh, led war. Um, so that's where the question, and that's the whole point of this uh, uh, petition uh, around uh, opposing Canada's bid security council. It's about uh, mobilizing people behind uh, progressive ideas and, and using the opportunity of a bid for a security council seat to uh, put forward um, you know, some critical discussion around uh, Canadian foreign policy. Okay, thanks very much for joining us, Steve. Thanks a lot for having me. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.